This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to have in the studio with me uh, today Risa Vetri Furman, who is district attorney from Montgomery County. And Risa is a Philly girl, so many of you are probably very familiar with her. And I'd like to welcome you to the studio. Sue, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, As I always do, I wanted to start out uh, with your background and your growing up years in Abington, which is familiar to me, having uh, grown up in Flower Town. Um, So talk a little bit about your family and and growing up there. Well, the first thing I have to tell you, and and it's it's primarily because my husband always teases me about this, I'm not originally from Abington. I was born and lived the first 10 years of my life in Northeast Philadelphia. And he said, I need to claim those roots. Yes. Uh, When I was... So I lived there uh, in Northeast from uh, from birth till the age of 10 and then moved to Abington when I was uh, 10 years old in the mm-hmm. fourth grade and uh, just had a really uh, idyllic kind of childhood growing up in, in Abington. You know, I was the oldest of uh, three kids in the family, two younger brothers, and it, we just loved life over there. We had to, went to great schools, had a great community, uh, moved into this neighborhood. It was right by Penn State Abington. You know, back mm-hmm. then it was called Ogon's Campus. And you know, would just spend our days bike riding around the neighborhood, running around the campus there, climbing trees, just having a good time. Yeah, probably doing very similar to what my childhood was like, running around the neighborhood. Our family or our neighbors had the key to every house. Yeah, Is you know, it- when it, when it would snow, I mean, I had, and I was just reminiscing about this with the snowstorm over the over the past weekend. But when it would snow, the neighborhood would get together and we'd trudge down, you know, put our boots on and go down the street to Baderwood Shopping Center. There yeah. was an Acme there, and there was a movie theater there. We'd go buy food and we'd come back, and a, as a neighborhood, we'd cook dinner and hang out at somebody's house. We just had great times together. Yeah, it's it's changed a bit. Well, still living in the community, I can say it's changed. I think all of our neighborhoods have changed. Right. There's not that kind of sense of intense community that we had growing up. But I'll tell you, it really made a difference for me in, in my early years because it was just such a rich experience. Yeah. Um, I understand you had a family uh, jewelry business. And um, can you t- and you worked there. I At did. At what age did you start to do that? Uh, you know, I, pr- I probably started working working. I have to say that in quotes. Uh, for my dad, when I was about eight years old, I would go in and I would 
get to Windex the glass the glass cases. And I say get to because that was a really exciting thing. I could spray the Windex and, and clean the fingerprints off of the counters, and I love that. Um, <laughs> I worked all through my youth. Uh, that was just something that we would that we did, my brothers and I. We would go to work with my dad on weekends, um, holiday season, you know, in the busy holiday times, whether it was Valentine's Day or Mother's Day or certainly Christmas season. It was all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. So we would go in and, and work, you know, from my teenage years. Um, that was my after school or weekend job and there were certain stores uh, in his in his um, organization where I would go a Roosevelt Mall and the Chamonix Mall Oxford Valley Mall like that that was those were the places I would spend some time I would pierce ears I got really good at that uh, not at eight I hope <laughs> not at eight but that was more like a 15 you know by 15 I could pierce ears um, I was engraving charms and, and pendants and you know selling whatever would come in yeah that's wonderful that at, at a young age you were exposed to some type of of work. Um, oh, it, it was more than just some type. I mean, yep. that was that was just such a significant um, part of our, our family dynamic that you, know, you had to work. You had, yeah. My parents, both of my parents, taught us um, to have a work ethic, you know, to, to just to show up and to work hard and do the very best that you can. And, you know, there was no there was no time for, for laziness. I mean, we had plenty of play time, but we all worked really hard and yeah. they instilled that in us from, from a very young age. Yeah, that's important. Um, and how about your mom? What did your mom do when you were growing up? Well, my mom uh, is, was uh, a lawyer. My mother graduated from Temple Law School in 1960. And you know, as I've gotten older, she hates my, my referencing that because she keeps telling me that that tells people how old she is. <laughs> I said, you know, Mom, you got a 48-year-old daughter. They kind of have an idea that you're, you're not 50 anymore. <laughs> we never feel the number. No, we don't. No. But, uh, <laughs> but she graduated early. She went to law school at a time where there were very few women, you know, just, a, just a handful of women in, in, the, in the class and certainly in the practice. And so uh, my brothers and I had an interesting family dynamic because we got to see, you know, our mother really trying to make it in the legal profession and face a lot of barriers, a lot of challenges and hurdles, uh, some of which she was able to to um, to get over and, and some she wasn't. Uh, and then my dad had this wonderful business and, and worked really hard. And they then together worked in the business. My mom, part of her practice was as counsel for the business. Uh, so we really just saw, you know, what it meant to have a fully involved, active, industrious family. Yeah. You know, I'm curious. Your mo- So that's something um, pretty remarkable that your mom did at a time when it wasn't um, typical. Did she have conversations with you when you were a young girl about being independent and having something of your own? I, I would say that was a, a weekly occurrence or a daily occurrence. I mean, the the, the term independence and, and really got that from both of of my parents. My father ran the business and he would always say to us, uh, to all of us, you want to work for yourself. I mean, if you can, you want to work for yourself. You want to be your own boss. You want to be able to make the rules. You want to be able to just depend on yourself for whatever you need. And that was something that he stressed. And I think my mother, less by what she said than by the example that she she, um, created for us, just showed that Every person has to be independent, man or woman. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have something for yourself. You have to have uh, a, a, a mission or a, a work. You know, and at that time, for a lot of people, it wasn't work, but for her, it was something that really inspires you, that makes you want to get up uh, out of bed and 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 live your life and really live to the fullest. So she was just this extraordinary role model, uh, not just as a lawyer, but really as as a woman and as a person who was so strong and so dynamic and and just she was a force of nature. What was her um, area of law that she practiced? Ultimately, she wound up uh, doing family law and, and business. So she 
always represented businesses doing small business work, and, and I would say primarily for my father, and that was an expertise. She had started in real estate. She could not get a job in a law firm when she got out of law school. So she eventually went to uh, into real estate and worked as counsel for, back then it was the Kravitz Company, which um, later became Kravco. And so they were the early shopping center developers. So she worked with them and developed that expertise and then later got involved in family law. Uh, and that, for many years, was her, her bread and butter. Now, how about your, your brothers? Did they go into law as well? No, no neither one of them did. We've, we've all taken very, um, very divergent paths. Uh, and when I was young, people would say, are you going to be a lawyer like your mom? Or are you going to go into business like your dad? And I would say, well, I, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, which, of course, I, I found a different way to, to, to do what my mother does. Um, my brother, Mark, um, you know, started in Philadelphia and moved around the country, actually lived around the world for different times, and now is back here in Philadelphia uh, owning, I think he has six restaurants now with a seventh about to open, uh, doing exceptionally well mm-hmm. uh, running his, his restaurants, uh, the Vetri family of restaurants, okay. which I, I think some people have heard of, mm-hmm. uh, with Vetri, Osteria, Amis, Alaspina, Pizzeria Vetri, Austria over in Morristown, and, and then a new one he's opening at the Navy Yard. So there's his plug. Great. Got to get that in. <laughs> yeah. And I got all the names. That's na- you know, beautiful how about down that I, there. How about that I got all the names? Yeah, very, he'll be very happy with you. Right. Um, and then my brother, our youngest brother, Adam, is on, in California, and he went a completely different uh, route. He is in the entertainment industry, and he's a director and producer for reality television programs. Oh, neat. So he's, I mean, he's done so many fascinating things over the years. Uh, he did a season of The Biggest Loser. Um, he's he's done this uh, neat shot neat show on the History Chan- Channel called Top Shot. He's doing something right now uh, called The Devil's Ride. It's about motorcycle gangs in Southern California. So he just has always really interesting programs that he's doing. Yeah, real neat. That's nice perks for you. Restaurants, Hollywood. <laughs> well, and, you know, we're just. I think it's so interesting when I when you look at our family because we're all so different. You know, different personalities. We've followed different paths. You know, different career paths. And yet, at the core, we're you know we're all very similar. We have very similar values, and and really focused on on our family more than anything else. Well, and successful. I, I hope. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, at least the boys are. <laughs> now, you tell me what, some of the things you did while in high school. What were some of the activities? Did you play sports? Were you into the arts? You know, I. I probably spent more of my time in high school um, working than anything else. I mean, I, I was a, I ran for a little bit, although you know, not a, I'd never really played team sports. I played tennis a little bit just recreationally, and, and for a while when I was younger, I liked to run. Um, and I was one of the early um, women who, I guess a girl back then, uh, who went to a weightlifting gym. There was a weightlifting gym in Abington that I started going to when I was a teenager. And that That's was just some, unusual. No one did that back then. No, no one even heard of it. It was like one of those real kind of heavy-duty men's weightlifting gyms uh, in the, uh, at the Benjamin Fox Pavilion. And I just found it, and I thought it was terrific. So I started doing, doing that kind of physical training. Probably scared the heck out of the boys. You're... I, I just think they didn't. I mean, the, the, the guys who were there, they, they didn't quite know what to make of me. <laughs> I love, I mean, you just, you wanted to be strong mentally and physically. Something like that. Right? Something like that. <laughs> I, you know, and I think I just wanted to do things that, that were different and that were interesting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's that's a wonderful um, mindset to have as a young girl. And a lot about this show is really telling stories, personal stories behind people's careers and titles um, in order to help young 
girls and women who really haven't figured out what it is they're supposed to be doing yet. I, I feel very strongly in having a purpose, as you mentioned. That's really what brings you happiness and, and contentment in life. Where would you say that that self-esteem came from for you? Would you say it was from family business and and the discussions you had with your mom about her career? I, I would say more more generally, it came from my parents. Mm-hmm. That was the way that they raised us, not just me, but but each of us. That uh, that you really had to believe in yourself. Uh, you no, know, it wasn't just talk about hard work. It was that you have to believe in yourself and and know that you can do things and be willing to work. Uh, harder than anyone to accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. But the message that they sent to all of us was you can do absolutely anything um, if you put your mind to it and, and you're willing to, to work for it. Mm-hmm. And then they also stressed us, you have to find those things to do that you're really going to love. And and that's going to really keep you going. So I know sometimes when you say things like that, people say it's Pollyanna. But right. it, but I don't think that it is. Because right. I mean, that, that's how I learned from my earliest my earliest memories, you know, my, both my father and my mother stressing that there's, you can do anything. And that was at a time when that's not the way people talk to girls. And yeah. I think that was what was so different. Mm-hmm. You know, most of my contemporaries didn't have those kind of influences. Right. Uh, most of my contemporaries, you know, their moms were home when they got home from school. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a, people today can't even imagine that. Right. But their moms were home and, and they were there making a snack and talking about their day. And, and that was a great life. My life was just different. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade the, the background and experiences that I had for anything. You know, my mother jokes about when we were younger and she was working and it was just a revolving door of babysitters that my dad would call the house and never knew who was going to be answering the phone because you just never knew who was going to be there. And when you think about that through today's prism, it's unimaginable. Yeah. What do you mean that you don't have the steady, consistent caregiver for the child? But that was the way we grew up. And, and I can't tell you that I have any, I don't have any memories of it one way or the other, but there's certainly ne- nothing that's negative. Mm. I think that from those early years, we learned to be resilient and independent. You know, we learned how to roll with whatever came our way. And if things happened that weren't expected, we figured it out. Yeah. We, we figured it out. And I think that from an early age, that kind of background really had a great deal of influence on me as I got older in just helping me pick a career path and, and make some choices in my life that, that were a little bit unconventional and were risky and were things perhaps that, that women didn't do very easily. But it didn't, for me, it, it, I didn't give a second thought to, to tackling what I was going to tackle because I knew that I could do it if I wanted to. Yeah. But resiliency is a, is a great word as far as, you know, I think um, trying not to make things too cushy and easy for our kids is probably a better way to raise them. Uh, especially oh, sure. today with all the conveniences and everything that does make life a little bit easier than when we were growing up. My my favorite book on raising kids is is one that's called The Blessing of a Skin Knee. And, and you know, you may be familiar with it, but just a terrific yeah. a terrific book that I that I found when my kids were a bit younger and and that talked about how you have to let your kids fail. Mm-hmm. You have to let them fall down, you have to let them skin their knees and and figure it out. Right. And so, you know, you're not going to just completely throw them out there to the wolves. <laughs> throw them in front of the bus. Right. Um, <laughs> but you ha- they, they have to. And and I think as parents, uh, we do such a disservice to our kids today by just doing everything for them. Mm-hmm. I try not to. <laughs> I try very hard not to do that. And they will they will tell you I don't. And there, there are a lot of parents who, who and, and I see this, who, who actually believe that they're doing 
they're being better parents because they just do everything yeah. for their kids. And, and I don't think we're raising them to be competent adults. Yeah. And, and I see, you know, as, a, as someone who, you know, I hire, I hire assistant district attorneys, we hire staff in the office. So, you know, in that hiring component of the office, I can see the difference between people who have had to figure things out on their own and accomplish things on their own and someone who's just had everything handed to them. I bet. Everything in, from, from the sense of entitlement that, that sometimes young adults have, that certainly we see with teenagers uh, many times today, uh, from, the, from the lack of work ethic. Mm-hmm. And, and the people who do well in, in our sort of an organization are people who, uh, who can figure things out on their own, you know, that they can think on their feet, they can solve problems. You know, when something unexpected happens, they roll with the punches. I mean, a lot of the things that, that make a good prosecutor and you know, that make a good uh, law enforcement professional are the kind of things that, that you know, unknowingly my parents taught us at a very young age. What point in your life um, did you decide you were going to go uh, to law school? Um, I understand you you uh, graduated with a degree in history, mm-hmm. and that's a very marketable degree. <laughs> <laughs> history degree from Penn. <laughs> well, you know what? I, what I mean, that's a lot of reading, right? And that's a you know, I think that was probably a good prep for you then to to go on to Widener and get your law degree. I, you know, back when I went to college. Uh, and, and I have to confess that I don't really know if this was just my approach to it or if it was more a function of the time. I never felt any pressure to pick a course of study that would get me a job. I knew I would always get a job. I knew I could work. I mean, I was a, a waitress and a bartender. And I had you know, great jobs and some terrible jobs, but I always was working. So working wasn't going to be the issue. I really wanted to to study things at Penn that would just expand my mind and my, my fund of information and knowledge. So I crafted this, um, this history degree and this history program, but what I really did was I, I just took the classes that were interesting to me. So I took wonderful English classes. I took a writing class with a fabulous professor named Nora Magid, who I think helped teach me how to write, uh, you know, not writing for law, but just creative writing and some fiction writing. And non- she was primarily nonfiction. Um, I took wonderful history classes with a professor named Alan Kors who used to teach uh, intellectual history. So I think I took every century class that he taught, I took from, like we did 18th, 19th, 20th century intellectual history. I took classes at Wharton. You know, I had no business in statistics, but I was there. Um, I took classes at, at um, over at uh, the Annenberg Center. I took anything that I could that I thought was going to be interesting, not because it was guiding me to a particular place, but just because it was interesting. And I will tell you, quite candidly, law school was never even in the cards. I mean, I really never expected that that would be where I'd go. Um, but I just was taking classes that were interesting. And then when I graduated, um, really didn't know what I wanted to do. So my, my day job was a receptionist in a recording studio out in West Philadelphia. It's kind of funny to me to look around the studio and, and hear. And, <laughs> you having and a flashback? A little bit, <laughs> a little bit. Um, but that was a music recording studio. And you know, so I, my job was to... Um, to book the studio and to collect um, to collect the accounts receivable. That was really a challenge from the broke musicians oh. who had no money to record, <laughs> oh, and somehow I had to collect the money. Uh, but you know, it was a it was a really neat bunch of people that I was with. So my day job was that, and my night job was bartending at the White Dog Cafe. And you know, I was in this little world for a while, where you know we were out at clubs at night and going to see the bands that you know that were recording in the studio that were playing and see other bands. It was just an interesting time. And eventually, um, when I tired of that, I went to my dad and, and said, I'd like to come and work with you. 
And so I started working with my dad. And that was just a magical time to, you know, to be with my dad every day. You know, we started our day together. I'd go to the office and work with him. And he put me in charge of some of the stores um, in, in areas, you know, some of the areas where we had them. So I had sort of South Jersey and Delaware stores. And I was doing that for a while. And um, I decided that I would go to law school thinking that the law degree would be a degree that would help me in the business. And uh, kind of long story short, I was at the Concord Mall restocking and restaffing one of our stores, which is right next door to Widener Law School. And so, you know, I think perfect serendipity. I said, okay, well, I'll just go to Widener Law School at night. So it was just a kind of a decision that you just made fairly quickly. I, I, I mean, it's not something that you had thought about and thought about that was really out of your realm. It, it really was. I mean, yeah. being being a practicing lawyer was something I never thought about. When I decided to go to law school, it was, for me, it was a business decision. Yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to go to law school, and then I'll focus on business law, and then that will help me figure out what we want to do with this jewelry company. Okay, great. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with Risa Vetri Furman. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the mutual fund store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit mutualfundstore.com or call the mutual fund store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will. If we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at wpn at villanova.edu or visit their website at villanova.edu slash wpn. Go Nova! Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? 
InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker Financial Advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484 484- 530-2806 or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. I'm in the studio today with Risa Vetri Furman, who is district attorney for Montgomery County. And uh, we're, we're learning all about Risa's years growing up in Abington, um, working in the family business, um, and her school years. And, and we were uh, just before the break talking about how she actually made the decision to go to law school after saying she wasn't going to go to law school. And uh, I'd love to hear um, what it was like those years there and, and a couple of years after. When I went, when I first started law school, I started Widener, and I was in the nighttime program. So it was a different experience. It was early in the night programs for law school, uh, and back then it was people who um, had careers. It was a second career for most. Uh, many of my classmates were considerably older than I was, and and very well established in other careers, whether it's medicine or engineering uh, or business. So it was a really interesting um, landscape there. You know, very interesting people. And it was different than what I had come from. Work going to to college, you're with all of your contemporaries. Everyone is in the same place in life. So I really enjoyed being in this educational environment where everybody during the day was doing something else and then would come together at night and on the weekends. And so I did that for a while and, and really enjoyed the time. Eventually, I switched into the day program, and it really was very different to be with uh, all of, say, more of my contemporaries. But I graduated law school uh, after two and a half years. And um, in the midst of my law school career, I had an internship one summer with the United States Attorney's Office in Philadelphia, with the Eastern District. And I, and I just got it on a complete whim. You know, I came from a background where I had no exposure to law enforcement um, or public service of that nature. And one of my classmates told me about an internship from the past summer and that it was so interesting. 
And I said, you know, this is one of those things. Let me do it. I wanted, I always want to do things that are different, just try new things. So this is something I can try. I'll have a great summer. It'll be exciting, interesting, challenging, and then I'll, I'll never do it again. And that was really what I thought a prosecution was going to be. I started my internship. Uh, it was the summer of 1991. And it, it was, um, you know, it was the lightning bolt moment for me. It really was. I, I, that's the only way I can explain it. I wasn't looking for anything. I never expected anything other than just an interesting summer. And I was completely enraptured by everything I found there. I said, and this is what I want to do. I said, this is, this is the work that I want to do. This is the kind of work, the kind of place I want to be in. Um, this is my life's mission. So easy to say, you know, it's easy to be completely captured by the work, but, but whether you can find a job and whether you can actually do it are, are different questions. And I have to confess that I didn't know if I could or not. I didn't know if I had the, the background for it, the temperament for it. I didn't know how I would be. But I just set my, um, my, my sights on getting a job in a prosecutor's office. And uh, I, I joke about this. I, I tried for a while to get into Philadelphia, could not convince uh, them to hire me down there. So uh, I had to look elsewhere, and I was from, at that point, Montgomery County. I'd gr- grown up in Abington, so I, I looked to Montgomery County, and I was able to convince the district attorney at the time, Mike Marino, to, to give me a shot. I, I was, as you're saying that you were not able to convince some in Philadelphia, to, I find that very hard to believe. Um, looking at you, listening to you, knowing what you accomplished, I would imagine that someone would have hired you in a heartbeat. I don't know about that. I don't know that I that I gave off some of the same um, energy that I perhaps have now. You know, I think I was a little bit more of a blank slate. And I, as much as I wanted to do the work, you know, I was a, I was really a kid. Uh, you know, I was in my, my mid-20s. And I don't know that I would have given off uh, the impression that I would have been a superstar at this. I mean, I don't, I don't think it was such an obvious choice and I don't know that they were wrong in not hiring me. And I can certainly say with the benefit of hindsight, they did me a great service by not hiring me because I would not be where I am now. And I think it's a great example of how sometimes your failures or the, or, or not getting the thing that you think you want can really be a blessing uh, because I wanted that job. I wanted it so badly. I thought that was where I was meant to be. And I just kept knocking on the door, banging on the door, you know, jumping up and down outside the door. And I couldn't get them to hire me. And so I just, you know, I, I knew I had the goal and I was just going to do it somewhere else. Uh, so I, I came to Montgomery County and I started working there in, um, in January of 1993. And I have to tell you that one of the strangest days I had was the day that I got the job offer because I was in my dad's office and it was Christmas season. And if you know retail at Christmas season, it's crazy. Crazy, and especially I, in the jewelry business. It really is. And I, I think my father at the time had seen that I didn't get the job in Philadelphia and figured, okay, I've got her, and she's going to work with me. And that was what we figured was going to happen. And then I got the call. And I was sitting just right across the room from him, and I took the call, and it was, you know, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'll take it. And my father was looking at me with panic in his eyes. What did you just do? And I hung up the phone. I said, I just took a job. I'm going to be a prosecutor. And I, you know, I... I can't entirely joke about this. I think he's forgiven me, but I'm not entirely, I'm not sure. <laughs> but it was a really interesting moment because I didn't, I didn't have to think about it. You know, if you think about this moment, you, you, you get the phone call, you get the offer and, you know, I didn't have to say, I'm going to go talk to someone. Let me check with my husband. Let me talk to my father. Let me think about it. It was just yes, instantaneously. And, and that I could do that without even thinking really told me that it was the right thing. Right. And, and I gave a three-year commitment. So, that was going to be the next three years for me. I thought that was a huge amount of time. 
but I made the commitment to work for three years and, and I said I would do that. And so I, I did that. And I found that three years very quickly became six, became nine, became 12. And I was just, you know, before I knew it, I was there for 15 years and, and running for the office that I never, ever would have anticipated that I would have done. Yeah. What are some of the things you learned in those early years? So you're, you know, you're a little bit, you take the job as, as prosecutor and you've never done this before. What are some of the things you learned? You know, I think some of the, the bigger lessons is you have to stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves and you have to be their voice. Um, and I learned how to do that. I don't know that I would have known going in how to do that. Uh, I learned that you have to stand up to all sorts of challenges. And, and sometimes they're the obvious challenges, you know, standing up to the bad guys, if you will. But sometimes the challenges come from very different places. Sometimes they come from places that you wouldn't expect them to come. You know, whether it's uh, witnessing, witnesses in cases who uh, pose challenges or sometimes judges or defense attorneys uh, or, or, you know, police officers that we were dealing with. And whatever the challenge was, it, I had to figure out how to stand up and meet it. And sometimes it's you have to stand up and fight. And sometimes you have to know how to negotiate out of a situation or negotiate through a situation to get uh, to get the best result for everyone. And so, you know, I, in my early years, I would say my earliest years, uh, I was just fighting all the time because that's what you do. And eventually I learned how to be uh, more nuanced about it and how to work with other people in a much more collaborative way. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned in my early years is is through collaboration, you could actually solve a lot of problems. You know, if you get everybody to the table and you work together, honestly, trying to to figure out the best way to tackle something. Is there is there a single case that that sticks out in your mind that you're most proud of? You know, people ask me that a lot. And, and I have to say that when I think about different cases, I mean, there are many of them that were noteworthy for me, you know, whether it's the first time I went into trial and, and took a case to verdict, which was so exciting, you know, or, or the first murder case that I tried, which, you know, was a, a terrible uh, domestic stabbing uh, in violation of a protection from abuse order that ultimately was the basis of the Pennsylvania legislature adding that as an aggravating factor. But, I, but for me, the case that I would say impacted me the most, and I think that's the, the most comfortable way for me to say it, the case that impacted me the most was a case of child sexual abuse involving uh, a little boy from from Lower Marion that involved um, multi-generational child sexual abuse. He had been uh, abused by three different members of his family. Uh, one of the members of his family had molested other people as well. And it was just this very uh, horrific tale that, that you couldn't, None of us could imagine. I mean, it's just, I think so many of the things that we see are pe- are things that regular folks can't imagine. And yet this family was living the unimaginable, living this horror story. And part of my job was to, to, to get them through it and to, to give them a sense of justice. And I came into the case later. I actually didn't get involved until the, the last of the three was being prosecuted. But it was a very powerful experience for me because I really got to see uh, up close and personal, how difficult our systems were for kids and their families. We This little boy had been hurt by three different people, and, and so he had to endure dozens or hundreds of interviews, I mean, from police officers to social workers to prosecutors over and over again to uh, medical and mental health professionals. I mean, he just had to talk constantly about what happened to him and relive it over and over again. 
And, you know, in theory, when you were, when I was a young prosecutor and I would make kids do that and we would have to, I would make them talk and talk, I never gave any thought to what I was doing to them. I was just trying to go get the bad guy. But through that case, it really opened my eyes to the way the system damaged kids further. And, and this, this little boy's mother was very clear with me and, and she was, uh, you know, very supportive of what we were doing, but she was very clear that what happened to her kid was real bad, but the system was really horrible. And she would say in, in just very gentle ways, there's got to be a way to do this differently. There's got to be a way to change it. And ultimately, that case and that family and the ordeal that they went through uh, proved to be the basis of us changing the criminal justice system in Montgomery County by opening a child advocacy center. And we opened, uh, now this is many years later, because I had to be, I had to become DA. I guess I had to run for DA so I could do this. But uh, I became district attorney in, in 2008, and in 2009, we opened our doors at Mission Kids Child Advocacy Center, and that was a journey of uh, many years, probably going back to about 2005, collaborating with our police departments, with our Office of Children and Youth, with all of the stakeholders involved in the response to child abuse, not just investigation, but everybody who had a piece of responding to child abuse, whether it was in the uh, the, the healing part of it, medical and mental health care, the investigative part of it, or the family services part of it, um, or beyond. And we brought everybody together and really worked hard over five, six years to, 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 put, this, to put this program together. And in 2009, we opened our doors, and it's just been a phenomenal success. And I define success by uh, kids and families being able to, to come through the system and walk out in a way where healing starts as opposed to having to go and relive this trauma over and over again. Where is the center? I can't tell you. I, and I, I don't say that entirely in jest. It's at a confidential location. It's oh, in Montgomery okay. County, and we don't disclose the location of it for what I think will, will be, when I explain, very obvious reasons. We don't want perpetrators to know where it is. Right. So you know, we don't want to <clears throat> highlight the location of it so that someone could, could go there. Uh, but we, it's available to police. It's not, it's not a place that people would walk off the street to, to go into, but it's a secure location, and it's where we take uh, the children where there's been a report of child abuse, and it's where they come to give their statements, and they, they give their statements to specially trained forensic interviewers in rooms that are designed to be comfortable. Okay. You know, not, so it's not in the concrete walled police station where you have you know, 20 different things happening um, all around you. It's not in a sterile, scary, uncomfortable environment. It's done in a way, in, in both in a place and by people who are trained in gathering information in an objective way, because I think that is the critical part of the center. Um, there are no preordained conclusions. There's no presumption of truth. It's just we're going to gather the information and we're going to investigate. And if the investigation leads us to conclude that someone should be arrested, then that part of it's my job as, as the DA, working with the police, we will, we will make the arrest and we will follow through with the prosecution. But the bulk of what the center does is, after the interviews are done, is coordinate the kind of healing services that a child might need, whether it's medical care or mental health care, mm -hmm. counseling for the child or non-offending caregivers or other sort of family services that are needed. It, it really provides the hub to get them what they need so that this this thing that happened can be something that they get over and get past and they can get on with their lives. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, it, there needs to be follow-up. It can't just be, you know, their story and then, then they're left to go figure it out. And, and you know, if there's not follow-up 
and you don't really deal with what happened with kids, those are the kids that often go on to become the abusers. Right. I mean, exactly. we see that cycle of abuse. I mean, it, it exists. So so I think as a society, we just have this obligation to to step in and make sure that kids get the, the care that they need, that we do whatever we can to help them get past that so that they that then they can be productive. Yeah. I, I really would like to know, you see some horrific things and some and some really dark things in your job how do you remain hopeful that's such a great question and and I and I have to say that I am um, I think part of that is just the way I'm wired and I really have a better facility than some people to, to not let things like that get me down and I think some of that's just purely personal there are many people I've seen over the years who come in and they do the work that we do and they just can't they get to a point where they just say, enough, I can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And somehow I've, I've been able to, to not let that happen to me, or at least not yet, uh, 22 years and, and, and going strong. Uh, but I think part of it is the way that I'm wired, and part of it is just having a very strong uh, core outside of the office. So my family is, uh, is there for me, you know, from my husband to my three kids to my parents, my siblings, my, my sister-in-laws and brother-in-laws and the extended family. And I have just a very rich life outside of what I do professionally that gives me a lot of ways and places to to just get rid of any of that negative uh, energy or uh, anxiety. Mm-hmm. Because I, th- I think you have to. There has to be a way to just get rid of it all. Because if you just focus on the work and if you're only around people and having conversations all the time that, that focus on these terrible things that happen, I, I don't know that anyone could really... Uh, get through that un- unscarred. Right. And and I would imagine you, you have a general sense of there's more good in the world than bad, even though you're seeing that and dealing with that. You know, I have to tell you, I, I really do. And I think it's um it's unusual for someone who, who does what I do professionally to, to see that, but or to say that. Uh, but I really do. On, on any given day, and it may be because I've I've put myself in a position where I'm working with so many people in the community who do so much good work every day, but... Uh, but I see so much of the good, whether it's uh, this, the incredible core of volunteers that we have um, at the Child Advocacy Center. Uh, and, and they really are. I mean, they're extraordinary. We couldn't run Mission Kids without the amazing volunteers that we have, uh, those that come into the office, those that support us financially, and people just step up and do amazing things. Uh, to, um, to things I see going on in different community groups, whether it's you know Big Brothers. Uh, you know, we've done some work with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and I see this amazing work being done to help kids in our community, uh, to the police athletic leagues that we work with. To um, you know, My brother has a foundation, the Vetri Foundation for Children, and they're, it's focused on uh, healthy eating and healthy lifestyles. And I see the amazing work that he's doing and, and people surrounding him. So I really get to see, even though my, my day job and the, and the core of my responsibility deals with, with crime and some terrible things, that's such a small percentage of, of what our community is about. That is such a great point. I'm listening and I'm thinking most of us who are not in that field don't see the people battling you know, the evil, basically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what a great point. You're, you, you know, you're seeing that even though these things are happening— there's a whole um, community of people battling against it and trying to help. And it's a great point because they're, the law enforcement community, the military community, I mean, they're just, it's such a wonderful community in and of itself. And there are people who just day in and day out at many, in many different jobs, many different levels, all play a part there. You know, everyone from 
um, our support staff. We have an amazing support staff in the office. The, the people who who have to put the files together and and gather files for us for different things. The ones who have to run records checks uh, from from the most entry level position in the office. The person who photocopies discovery so we can give it to the defense. Uh, to uh, the highest level assistant DA, to the detectives who work with us, you know, the, the homicide unit, the narcotics unit, uh, our major crimes unit. We have all these units within the office and very skilled detectives who just every day are are fighting crime. Um, they're they're doing this work so that we can that we can find justice for people. But there's so much more to each of them than just the work that they do. Right. Um, there's another organization that you founded, the Montgomery Child Advocacy Project. How is that? Um, what what does that do differently from the center? Uh, there, you know, a lot of people confuse them, but they actually are, are, and they're very different. The Montgomery Child Advocacy Project is an organization of lawyers. It was something that uh, one of my colleagues in the DA's office, uh, Wendy Demchik Alloy, and I started together, and she's now on the bench. Uh, but the Montgomery Child Advocacy Project, we call MCAP provides legal services for kids who've been abused and neglected. So it really is lawyers in Montgomery County through the Bar Association uh, who donate their time to represent kids. It's a tremendous service that lawyers in our community provide. And and they represent the kids that would be coming through our Child Advocacy Center. They represent the kids who are coming through the system, but their only responsibility is to represent them legally. Okay. Whereas at the Child Advocacy Center, uh, we have... Um, many different responsibilities and we have an investigative piece and prosecutorial piece not so much at the center but the people who are involved in that whereas mcap we actually call them mcaps it's become a noun and it's become a verb uh, but the mcaps who represent kids in montgomery county are donating their legal services yeah, that's wonderful um, we're going to take one last quick break and we'll be back with risa vetri Furman. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at wpn at villanova.edu or visit their website at villanova.edu slash wpn. Go Nova! Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? 
InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face to face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, Wealth Management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC. Member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in the studio today with Risa Vetri-Furman, who is District Attorney for Montgomery County, and we're having some wonderful conversation. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the book that you wrote, and the title of the book is The Mouse Who Went Surfing Alone. And uh, tell us how that came to be and, and what inspired you to write that. So uh, I have three kids, and a number of years ago, uh, my youngest son, I guess, was about eight years old, and he was on the family computer. And, you know, he was doing, or we were doing as a family, all the things that I would tell families to do in terms of Internet safety back then, uh, but it was at a time you know, when we didn't have a whole lot of exposure to the Internet and what was out there. He was on a chat room playing a game, and he was communicating with somebody. It was very clear to me he was talking to somebody while he was on the computer. And I asked him what he was doing, and he told me that he was talking to his cousin. If he was eight, his cousin would have been about five. And I said, well, how are you communicating with each other? And it was a, a kid's game where they had 
they had a feature that was a chat room. And that was the first time I had ever seen anything like that. It sounds silly today because we know that that's how they're made. But back then, that was not the case. So I explained to him that just because somebody's name is on the screen, it doesn't mean it's them. I thought that was a really important thing to teach a kid that you don't know who's on the other side of the screen. And he was just defiant. He looked at me, you know, like I was just the stupidest person on the face of the earth with this face. As kids do. Yeah, they do. I know. It's not the first, won't be the last time. But but he gave me this look I'm like, Mom, of course it is. Her name's on the screen. Of course that's her. And I really, I had this just moment of intense frustration realizing that I need to teach my son about safety online. So I went to the Barnes and Noble thinking I might find a book that would teach, you know, children's book that would teach kids about concepts of internet safety. And there was really nothing there. There was nothing that was devoted to kids and, and internet safety. And I knew from my, my day job, you know, as a prosecutor that kids got into a lot of trouble with, uh, with predators, uh, with sometimes with each other in terms of uh, bullying and things that were starting to happen online, but that we knew, and we knew that, uh, that predators were, were trying to reach out to kids in this way. It was this new platform. What year was this? It, it, you know, I, I have to go back. I mean, he's 15 now, so, you know, maybe it was seven years ago or okay. so. Okay. Uh, so I couldn't find the book, and I said, I got it into my head, I'm going to write a children's book. And that was just uh, eventually what we did. Um, a few years went by. I had this, this idea of the children's book and eventually um, got together with, with my kids, and we sat down and, uh, you know, had some help from... Um, from a terrific company that was doing some work with us with uh, with Mission Kids called DeSico Batista Communications, and you know we we wrote the little story. I mean, it was really it was just so much fun. We sat down in my daughter's bedroom and we were playing with you know actually online looking at what the sea predators should be, and we wanted the story to be uh, a story of this character Wesley the mouse who encountered sea predators that were meant to reflect some of the dangers online. And so it's a really simple children's book. The, the character encounters different predators. He gets past it. He eventually goes home to his family. And then at the end, we have tips for safe surfing. So it's a, it's a children's book for young kids, but also meant for parents. And it's a tool that parents can use to teach their kids about how to use this incredible resource that we have, the mm-hmm. Internet, safely. So That's really what it's about. You know, a lot of parents used to say I would do a lot of these uh, Internet safety presentations as the DA or as a DA, an assistant DA, and they would say, well, I'm just not going to let my kids use it. And I don't think that's the answer. You know, this is a, this is a part <laughs> of our world, and it's an amazing tool. You have information about anything at your fingertips. But as parents, we have a responsibility to teach kids how to use this tool appropriately. And if we don't do that when they're little, they're going to develop bad habits. So the idea was this children's book would be something that parents can use uh, at the earliest stages, preschool or pre, pre-K, maybe first, second, third grade. And we've given it uh, through the help of Verizon, through a grant we got from the Verizon Foundation. We've been able to put it into every single uh, public elementary school in Montgomery right. County, many of the private schools as well. Uh, they were they funded us in our ability to do that. So I've, I've actually personally gone out and I've done book readings at some of our schools. Uh, I've done programs at many of the schools. And we still go out and we do that. But we wanted to make sure that the book got into all the school libraries and they use it as a resource. And I should tell you that I'm, I'm actually in the process of working on my second book, that's going to be on bullying and, and cyberbullying. Great. So hoping... We'll have you back. When... My, my fingers are crossed. I'm hoping that uh, we can have it out uh, by October, which is the, is the month that we devote to uh, bullying awareness. So you are writing it now. Uh, the book has been written, and it's right now in the hands of, of a wonderful illustrator named Steve Herko. He did the illustrations on the first book, and, and they're extraordinary. So he's working on the second one right now. And the other thing I'll mention, just while I have the microphone, is that uh, the book is, is sold 
and ultimately benefits mission kids. So it's, it is meant as a fundraiser for a child advocacy center and every dime that comes in goes directly to the child advocacy center. That's terrific. And, and, and the other thing that's really wonderful is that as you mentioned, when we try to tell our kids these things, they don't necessarily think we know what we're talking about, but if you give them a book and they read it, they believe it. And and I think the idea is you get to kids young. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to let a kid use a device at the age of five, yeah. They, there should be some effort to teach them about the, the dangers of the Absolutely. device and how it can be misused. And, the, and, I, and I say this because my generation of parents, you know, my kids are all teens now, my generation of parents was really the first one to be exposed to this. Mm-hmm. You know, when my youngest was born, we didn't have to deal with this. And it was as my kids were growing up and getting to those ages that they now had access to computers and then access to the Internet and the, the smartphones. And so as parents, nobody really talked to us in the early stages about how to teach these lessons, it re- the lessons really came out of some of the real horror stories that we saw in law enforcement, and we took those bad stories and turned it into something positive. Right. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and I'd love to uh, ask you if you have any other future plans other than uh, district attorney for Montgomery County. Is there something else that you have floating around in your mind that you um, might want to tackle? Well, you've been talking to me long enough that you know, I'm sure, that I'm always looking for a challenge and I'm always looking to uh, to, to scale a new mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think as I'm sitting here today that uh, there's anything I really want to share with the world. Okay. <laughs> You're busy enough. You have enough on your plate. You know what? I'm having a great time. You know, I still get up in the morning. I love going to work. I love what I have the privilege of doing. Uh, I love being involved in public service. It's really, it's a privilege and an honor every day. And I still feel like that. So I'm not running away so fast. Yeah, that's terrific. I'm so appreciative of your coming in and, and giving me an hour of your time. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of other more important things on your plate today. It's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, that's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, if you have questions uh, for any of my guests, feel free to call me at 215 313-5561. Make it a great week, everyone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.